You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hello and welcome to The Good GP, the education podcast for busy GPs. Today on the show, our guest is Dr. Raj Menon. Raj, welcome back. Thanks for having me back, Tim. And look, there's been a lot that's happened since our last talk. You're a father for the first time. Congratulations. Thank you very much. So life's keeping you pretty busy? Yeah, yeah, in, in a good way. That's fantastic. And I've got to say, I never got the chance to say thank you. The podcast we did on Codeine was the busiest podcast we've ever had. It's had the most traffic and it clearly got a lot of interest. Yeah, that's great that people are interested. It's definitely a big topic and it's good to keep active discussion going on. Yeah, I think it's caused people to think a bit more about pain and pain patients. So as much as I think the profession thought it was a challenging thing, it's probably brought out a lot of good thoughts around pain. And that's sort of the nature of our episode today. We're, we're talking about acute pain, which is it's a bit of a challenging topic for both of us because we, we probably don't think about acute pain a lot. You and I probably think about acute pain in very different ways because we're practising in very different circumstances. So I think that's definitely, it can be very challenging. Yeah. So well, let's just spring into it then. How do you see managing acute pain for us GPs in the community different to managing acute pain in the hospital? I imagine you would say, think of acute pain more along the lines of sort of post-surgical pain. Yeah, I would say that more or less makes up almost all of my acute pain practice is post-operative or perioperative pain management. Until you told me about what we were going to be discussing today, I never really thought of acute pain as being anything else, despite the fact that pain medicine training take a third of it is meant to be acute pain, but it it is almost entirely hospital-based. So this was definitely made me sort of think outside the box a little bit. There's a bit of a security for hospital-based practitioners in the acute pain setting because we have a lot of safety features built into our practice that come with seeing people as inpatients. I think we tend to sometimes take for granted the very excellent nursing care that we rely on to make sure that our medications are being handled safely. Everything from the doses themselves to make sure that the doses are given appropriately at the right times that the patients are being compliant with their dosing. Issues like diversion and abuse are much less likely in an inpatient setting because the tight controls over Schedule 8 and Schedule 4 drugs and, and how they have to be dispensed, all the way to potential side effects. So the main one, especially if you're thinking about opioids, but certainly a lot of our non-opioid medications too, can cause sedation. And so we have lots of safeguards built in to ensure that patients aren't getting sedated in terms of regular nursing presence, regular observations, triggers for calling medical reviews for low sedation scores, low respiratory rate scores, low saturation scores, all that sort of stuff. So those sort of things allow us to be much more liberal with our medications in an inpatient setting. And hospitals like Joondalup and also the public hospitals in Perth have a regular 24-hour registrar presence, which means that we can arrange for people to be seen after half an hour, after two hours, after 45 minutes, whatever we like, because we have that liberty of being able to have frequent review. And I suppose the last thing is that there are lots of community-based things, which I would say I think about more on prescribing things for chronic pain, but less so for acute pain in the, in the inpatient setting would be things like driving, working, operating heavy machinery, looking after people's, uh, people looking after children, carers for other family members, all those sorts of things where side effects have wider ramifications outside of just the patient alone. And those sorts of things, I think, would form a, a core part of what you'd have to think about when treating acute pain in a community. Yeah, so much more assessment of the person yeah, and, yeah. and how they're going, their capacity to really administer the drug correctly. That's right, yeah. And a lot more of a judgment call around the circumstance, I yeah, guess. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, fantastic. Do you have any rules that are sort of helpful for, say, GPs managing acute pain? I think, generally speaking, most GPs have the basic safety principles of acute pain prescribing fairly in hand. I think focusing as much on non-opioid medication as possible and focusing as much on non-pharmacological routes as possible is a really good start. So non-pharmacological things like rest, elevation, applying ice if it's appropriate, although you may find that the evidence is sort of moving away from, from ice, but things like brief periods of immobility with splints or braces can be really helpful without exposing people to side effects. And then, yeah, and then pushing the non-opioid, non-sedating pathway of medication. So despite patients sometimes being frustrated, encouraging regular paracetamol or encouraging non-steroidal use in a safe population can be really helpful prior to going down the opioid route. And then if you are going to prescribe an opioid, then a clear agreement with the patient about the intent the intent of prescribing so why you're prescribing it how long you want to prescribe it for a clear goal in terms of how long when the patient's going to stop the opioid and just ensuring that it's a short-term course i think that those sort of reasonable principles but i think rules is probably too strong a word for the way i have to come at the issue because my acute pain practice is intrinsically flexible because i'm dealing with perioperative pain so so if i change the wording then so, yeah, sure. so, yeah. so we don't use rules mm. but uh, say a philosophy of, of managing acute pain mm. by way of example if i saw someone with say chronic back pain i'd probably be talking more about living with the pain yes. yeah, yeah. whereas if you see someone with new onset of shingles sure you know it's a bit of a different approach isn't yeah, it, in terms yeah, of yeah. how to manage the pain okay yeah i see what you're trying to say broad principles especially coming from my routine chronic pain practice would be treating acute pain is about temporary aggressive symptom control yeah. and then re-engaging with normal function as soon as possible i think i would sort of follow that rule in most people unless of course you are aware of something where the patient requires you know more urgent treatment or is, is unlikely to be able to get back to normal function quickly i think it would be about saying rest for 24 hours rest for 48 hours use these medications to get through that period and then get up and get walking again you know in any form that would be appropriate so get up get moving you know even if it's five minutes a day ten minutes a day encouraging patients that yes it's fine to rest short periods of time but we want to get you going and in that sort of scenario if you're looking at an acute pain problem sort of sprains strains back pain joint pain engaging with our allied health colleagues is really important based on just my personal experience alone the average physiotherapist is a lot more used to dealing with an acute pain problem than a general practitioner might be because Mm. their practice is probably a bit more limited to those sorts of conditions whereas the average gp is going to have to deal with a wide range of things everything from cardiovascular disease to endocrine disease and mental health whereas a physiotherapist would almost daily be dealing with acute pain so they would be very good i think at identifying non-pharmacological techniques particularly to deal with acute pain so the message around with the non-pharmacological is is really around restoring function as quickly as possible and obviously considering the the non-opioid options as well okay great um, so let's talk through situation. So you get a patient who comes in with really severe toothache. Sure. Um, yeah. And you know that there's, they may have seen the dentist, they may not, might take it a few days to a point and so forth. What's a good sort of approach to managing that acute pain? Dental pain is specifically quite a tricky one. I think most doctors struggle with managing dental pain. I don't think we learn a lot about it, generally yeah. speaking. And yet desperate patients will understandably come to us for help if they can't get in to see a dentist fast enough or the dental treatment is still taking time to work. I think provided, of course, there are no contraindications, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories are a powerful drug for bone pain, for muscular pain, for dental pain. I think they have a a big place to play. And I think we're rightly conservative with them when it comes to long-term chronic use. 
or even patient contraindications, but provided that those things are not an issue, I don't think there's a problem with loading people with nostroidals for short periods of time. One of the professors of pain medicine at Royal Perth, when he's dealing with perioperative pain, it's not unusual for him to give a patient a 400 milligram dose of celecoxib as a loading dose, Mm -hmm. and then continue them on high dose, 200 milligrams twice a day for three days, five days, probably not up to a week, but certainly five days. And that's that's a decent dose of of celecoxib. And most of us would look at that and go, oh, that's too high. But we're looking at it in terms of our standard practice of prescribing celecoxib, which is yeah. long-term. And certainly you wouldn't want to give someone those sorts of doses long-term. But certainly hitting people hard with non-steroidals early can be very powerful. And is there much difference in the, you know, is it a class effect of non-steroidals? A lot of it comes out of familiarity. Yeah. The evidence doesn't swing strongly one way or the other in terms of efficacy for non-steroidals, to the best of my knowledge, unless something has changed recently. Uh, we certainly trend towards the COX-2s because a lot of our patients tend to have comorbidities where we might, might try to avoid those things. If the patient's otherwise well, I, I don't think there's too much harm in using non-COX-specific non-steroidals as well. And then beyond that? I think there is a role for combination medications. So paracetamol non-steroidals can be helpful. I don't prescribe them routinely, but I can see that pharmacologically they make sense. Um, you may have improved compliance that way, and certainly patients may be more willing to accept that you're taking them seriously if you're prescribing something that's more than just five-cent paracetamol tablets that you can buy at Woolworths. You may argue that they might be misleading the patient. I think that's just taking advantage of your therapeutic relationship with the patient to show that you're actually taking them seriously because you're not prescribing a bad drug. And failing that, I think the weak opioid groups do have a role to play. Mm. I think it would be cruel and unfair to withhold those from our patients just because of this general movement we have towards avoiding opioids and chronic pain. It doesn't mean we should be avoiding them at all or altogether. Given that last time we spoke, we went on at length about codeine, mm. I probably wouldn't be my first choice. I've had a lot of good feedback from uh, the new paracetamol tramadol combination that's available on the market. A lot of my anaesthetic colleagues are now sending people home after day surgery with that rather than panadine fort or paracetamol codeine. Yep. And they're getting good feedback from their patients as well. The idea being that both are present at lower doses but act synergistically means the side effect profile is much less yeah. and is much, much better tolerated. Uh, I've had patients tell me when I've, they've come in for surgery, they've gone home on it, and I've seen them in clinic later on that... Uh, they preferred it to taking oxycodone mm. because they didn't get as much nausea, they didn't get as much sedation, dizziness, drowsiness, those sorts of things. It's not for everyone, but I think it is worth keeping in mind because you can, again, get an effective analgesia for short-term use. And that would be the fast-release tramadol? That's correct. Yeah. 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 So the dosing is 375 paracetamol, 37.5 tramadol. Yep. Um, and the dose-response studies early from tramadol showed that 37.5 was enough. Yep. You don't need 50 milligrams to get to get analgesia. And we did talk codeine yes. at length. I think that maybe there's a bit of discussion around do you use codeine versus oxycodone? Do you have any sure. thoughts on that? I think this is one of the places specifically where inpatient versus outpatient really comes into play. In an inpatient setting, I probably wouldn't bother using codeine. Those are my two choices. I would go straight to oxycodone, yep. maybe at a lower dose depending on the patient factors. And that's because, I mean, not, notwithstanding the fact it's because you've got the patient captive, so your, your ability to divert the drug is going to be different. That's correct, yeah. But is it because there's a difference? I mean, we talked through the sort of heterogeneous nature of responses to, to exactly. codeine. Yeah. So yeah. oxycodone is a bit more predictable. Predictable, yeah. I'm yeah. giving a drug that I can better predict and better understand and better monitor for yeah. rather than a drug which... I'm kind of just taking a bit of a gamble. It's not that you're not taking that gamble in the community, but I think your um, ability to control things is hampered somewhat because you 
yeah. haven't got the patient sitting there for the next 24 hours. So one of my colleagues, when I was asking questions about this, and I'll read his quote directly, he said, all chronic pain starts as acute. Yep. So if you start on oxycodone, <laughs> oxycodone is what they're going to end up on. Um, and so that principle is trying to say, basically, the safer it is whatever you start them on, the less likely they're to end up on something that's more unsafe. And so from a long-term perspective, if we're trying to look after our patients, not just in the immediate setting, but also thinking about their long-term future, the more you can avoid using a strong opioid, the better you're looking after their long-term health. Easier said than done. Yeah, so I might come back to that point yeah. in our next question um, because I'm going to take it up a notch and yeah. say, yeah. you know, someone brought in off the footy field, they've got an open fracture of their mm-hmm. ankle yeah. and, you know, obviously call an ambulance. Yeah. What should we do with that person? Mm. Is it, so to list the kind of drugs that we might have in our cupboard, we might have some parenteral tramadol for intramuscular. Sure. There would be people who have parenteral opiates as well. And then there's this sort of penthrops, which is the inhaled... Sure, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, toxic fluoride, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So what would you say of that bunch of ragged suspects to, to uh, try to keep paying there? So you said... Uh, Parental tramadol, methoxyfluorine, and what was the other uh, one that you mentioned? Uh, say an, an injectable opiate. Sure. Morphine or pethidine, I'm yeah. presuming. Yeah. yeah. I think they're all valid choices in that sort of scenario. You've got an acutely painful injury, and uh, we have a responsibility to make sure that our patient's suffering is managed as much as possible. I certainly wouldn't forget about the basic stuff, so immobilization, splinting, yeah. elevation. I think a, a patient can gain a lot from those things, especially you know while you're preparing or trying to figure out what to give them. Those things are, are kind of go-tos. The choice of what to give next, I think largely has to do with context. If it's your surgery, if it's your clinic, if you've got a practice nurse available, if you've got a SATS monitor available, you can be a little bit more liberal with what you give. If you're out in the field with a bag and it's just you and you're coordinating potentially other injuries or other people, then you might want to give something that's got a bit more tolerance. So in that sort of scenario, I think methoxyfluorine is an excellent choice because you're less worried about respiratory depression. The patient's uh, ability to self-administer the drug is a lot more flexible and you don't have to be drawing things up or handling needles or uh, any of those things. But if you've got the ability to put the patient in a safe situation, I think a parenteral opioid is is a completely valid choice in that sort of scenario. I think those sorts of scenarios, you can assume that there's a bit of a journey for the patient to go through before they end up getting stuck on something so you can give them an early medication and it's unlikely to change their long-term the long-term benefit that's really helpful i think as gps we a lot of practices have moved away from having opiates on site because of frankly it's because a lot of the bureaucracy involved with storing mm. opiates and the risk of course of course of diversion and, and it makes you a, a break-in target as yes. a practice yes, and so understood forth. yeah so it's, I think, assuring to hear that something like, say, penthrox or, or injectable tramadol is not a bad option. I guess, you know, the other side to consider is if you're injecting opiates, do you have a bag and mask and are you prepared to resuscitate, yeah. basically? I think you need to be comfortable with worst-case scenario. Given that my primary training is as an anaesthetist, I'm always thinking worst-case scenarios. Mm. Um, but I think it's important that you're aware of how bad things can get. And so being able to assess your patient before you administer a medication, it still matters. When you guys prescribe an antihypertensive, you assess the patients in many ways. But if I'm assessing someone before giving them an opioid in an unmonitored situation, I'm looking at their age, their comorbidities, how, how big are they, how likely are they to get into respiratory depression. If they do, can I handle it? So if they're an obese gentleman with a history of obstructive sleep apnea and it's just me... I might be a little bit more cautious, especially that if you'd administer an opioid IM, the onset time can be unpredictable. And so you don't know when it's likely to hit them and when they're likely to run into problems, if they're likely to run into problems. And the other thing to think about in that sort of scenario is that we sometimes get impatient and time can stretch out in those sorts of critical circumstances. And you may think it hasn't worked and they need a second dose. And 
knowing whether that's the right thing to do or not can be very difficult. Sometimes you, the temptation is to go, well, that wasn't enough, I'll give them another dose. But really what's happened is it just hasn't had time to work yet. And you may find that 10, 15, 20 minutes down the track, you're suddenly dealing with a very obtunded patient. Um, and so those are the sorts of things I need to be... I think I certainly wouldn't be telling GPs not to give them for these reasons, but I think we need more familiarity with them and just be cognizant of safety issues prior to embarking down that road because you are opening a can of worms potentially that you're not familiar with and so you don't have the experience or the muscle memory to be able to deal with those things immediately. Yeah. And the last thing you want to do is be trying to handle a patient who's unventilatable in the community setting and the ambulance is still 15, 20 minutes away or, or something further. With no equipment. Correct, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Great. That's incredibly helpful, Raj. Look, last question. I think this is the big one. When does acute pain become a chronic pain? Yeah. And what can we you know, watch out for to predict an acute pain that might become a chronic pain? Sure. So this is the topic of entire conferences, uh, the transition from acute to chronic pain. I think we touched on this last time, mm. uh, but I, I can't quite remember how in-depth we went into it. Um, the official definitions are... Uh, somewhat vague. Uh, some definitions go by anything greater than three months is considered chronic. The more ambiguous definition is to say that uh, if the pain is continuing outside of, of the time that would, you would expect for the injury to heal, that would be considered a chronic issue. I don't really know where I fall in those two things because by and large when people present to me they're already well established as being chronic so they usually have trouble for years before they come and see, see us in the clinic here. So I'm not sure I can give you a hard answer on to, into that question, but certainly if you can see that the pain is starting to have a systemic effect on the patient's quality of life and function, I'd be starting to be considering that to be a chronic problem. So if it's leading to low mood, if it's leading to relationship trouble, if it's leading to uh, employment trouble, if it's leading to financial pressures, if it's leading to non-pain related sequelae, I'd be starting to say, well, this certainly is starting to look like a chronic problem rather than an acute problem because clearly the patient's underlying coping mechanisms are not enough to deal with this pain in its entirety maybe that's still too vague but it's certainly where i'd be worried that's those are the things i'd be looking for to think well is it starting to become a bigger thing than it was before yeah look that's really helpful so i think what you're saying is that once it starts having significant effects on the life of a patient and it's going beyond the normal yeah. pathophysiology at play think chronic pain mm-hmm. you know it's so easy to see in retrospect as well absolutely. isn't it you absolutely know, it's, yeah it's yeah 2020 in retrospect when you look back and you think oh that patient's had a knee replacement and yes why am I still prescribing opiates? You know, it's, a year uh, later. Yeah. yeah, yeah or, yeah. you know, even three, four months sure. later. Yeah, and yeah. you just sort of, I've often reflected back on mm. when was that transition point? Yeah. And you're right. I think it's different from patient to patient and situation to situation. Absolutely. Predictive factors that are hard to come by. We have lots of theoretical predictive factors. There are some fairly sort of concrete ones, traumatic injuries, traumatic amputations, th- those sorts of things you can say, yeah, sure, that's a high risk. I think this scenario around the injury is really important. So what frame of mind was a patient in when they hurt themselves is really powerful. So were they at work and do they like their job? I always ask those two questions when someone injures themselves at work. You know, do you like your job? Do you like being there? What was it like to work there? Was it a traumatic car accident? Were they under a lot of pressure? Were they, were they with their kids or did someone die? What was their head like when they injured themselves? What was the patient's... Uh, scenario like beforehand so are they someone that copes well with adversity or do they tend to catastrophize catastrophization has been often highlighted as a single independent risk factor when it comes to predicting chronic pain 
Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Looking at their pain history. So if someone's had a history of lots of other types of pain, I would worry that they're likely to develop this current acute pain into a chronic one. This is not a comprehensive list, by the way. I'm just shooting things off the top of my head. If the pain is severe and uncontrolled for a prolonged period of time, that's a, that's a risk factor, certainly. As hospital practitioners, there are some injuries that make us sit up and take notice and go, this is possibly more high risk. So hand injuries, ankle injuries, facial injuries. This is not an evidence-based but physiological theory, but certainly you know, areas that are highly innovated and uh, have complex injuries, yeah. I think are at risk of developing a, a chronic problem. But my biggest thing is about the patient's mindset. There are people that can cope well with adversity. I tend to find that acute pain doesn't often, even if it translates into a long-term pain problem, doesn't really affect them too much. They seem to be able to manage it. But if those systems are not in place for whatever comorbidity they might have, physical, mental, or environmental, I think they're at risk of developing a chronic pain problem. And certainly the sort of basic stuff, which I always forget to mention, they've got strong neuropathic symptoms, if they've got other impaired function to the limb, if they've had compartment syndrome, if they've had nerve damage, if they've had like a burn or something like that, if it's a complex injury, those things certainly put them at high risk as well. There's one other thing I think that's worth mentioning. There is some evidence that high-dose opioid use early on may potentially predispose them to a long-term pain problem. And so I think that's a bit of a catch too, because we really haven't got anything else to give them if they've got a severe acute injury. Oh, yeah. um, but it's something to be aware of. And if someone's going home from hospital with high doses of opioids, certainly here at Joondalup and at Sir Charles Gardner, where are the two places I work, and I, I suspect most places in Australia, they would get follow-up in a pain clinic because they are at risk. Raj, look, that's just been incredibly helpful. It's really interesting to discuss the topic. It's a topic we probably we probably naturally deal with it all the time without thinking too much about it. So it's really interesting to have your thoughts and, and experience this. So thank you very much. I appreciate it, Tim. I think um, I see people in the acute setting a lot and I see people in the chronic setting a lot, but the general practitioner deal with them in the transition phase, I have a lot of respect for what you guys have to deal with because that's a tricky time. So I'm glad to be of any help I can. Thanks, Raj. And that's the end of the episode. Mm-hmm.